We're going to start a series today on the scarlet thread of redemption. And, and when we talk about this, now this is, this is a massive subject because we're going to be talking about the blood covenant. And um, it's all about faithfulness. This is kind of one of those things that are the behind the scenes, the behind the scenes of the Bible that you need to know that will thrill you. And what it will do is as you gain revelation knowledge of what God has said in his word from Genesis all the way through Revelation, it's one love story. And, and you, you just realize that, man, I could trust him. Because, you know, your whole walk of faith is based on trust. And I'm here to tell you, if God said it, he will do it. If he spoke it, he will bring it to pass. So our part is literally just to be willing and obedient. And here's the thing about that. You can get willing and obedient like this, right? Sometimes people are obedient, but they're not really willing, right? Oh, geez, I know I got a tithe here. Well, that's not blessed because it's not willing, right? Then there's other people that are willing, but they're just not obedient. And so, yeah, God, I'll do that. Okay, yes, I'll do that. And then all of a sudden, oh, oh gosh, I forgot to do that, right? But really, our part is very simple. But so many people in the body of Christ are having trouble because they're trying to believe a God who they don't know intimately. So we're going to talk about this if this is okay. If it's not, well, you're going to have to go to another church because this is where we're going. Amen? So the Bible, first of all, I just want to kind of do an overview. And I'm just going to take my time. Um, it's kind of hard because I used to teach about a 40-hour class on the blood covenant. And... Uh, I know a lot more about it now than I did years ago. And so I don't even know how long I could teach on this subject because it's all over the book. You've been redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus. And there's been a covenant that has been made between you and God. And the guarantee of that covenant is Jesus. It's not you. So it will never be broken. Amen? Because he's faithful. So the Bible... If you take an aerial view of the Bible, it's not two books. It's not God's one way in the Old Testament and another way in the New Testament. Okay? It's not two different books. You have to know that. Sometimes even when you go to Bible school or in seminary, it will be taught as if it's two different things. But it literally, both Old Testament and New Testament are telling the same story. If you don't understand that, you're not going to understand the word. They're telling the same story. God has an order to the Bible. He literally has a divine pattern. Every word is exactly the way God wanted it to be. It's perfect. It's infallible. It's a divine pattern. That's why the Bible says, listen, it is forever established. That means it's forever settled in heaven. It, it literally means that God, 
he surrenders to his word. If he said it, he'll do it. If he spoke it, he will bring it to pass. So literally, he wants you to know that. So from Genesis to Revelations, it's one story. What is the story about? The whole story is of God's blood covenant with man through his son, Jesus Christ. The whole Bible is one story, and it is the story of God's blood covenant through his son, Jesus Christ. So, so when you read the Bible, see, a lot of times when people teach on the book of Revelation as an example, it gets really kind of weird and complicated because you're trying to teach it so that people, you know, they're teaching it from a standpoint of we, so we can know when the rapture is going to happen or we can know who the Antichrist is. No, the, the book of Revelation is not about that. It is about Jesus. Even the title itself is called the revelation of Jesus Christ, the revealing of him. Well, the whole Bible is going to reveal God's blood covenant with man through his son Jesus, okay? God's plan of redemption is in the blood covenant. God's plan of redemption was born out of his love for man. God loves man. And he loved man when man literally committed high treason and left him and separated himself from God. God still loved man. And God had a plan to fix that. So the purpose of God's plan of redemption was so that man could walk beside him, could walk with him intimately in righteousness. All right? That's the plan. God wanted intimate relationship restored. So in order for man who was sinful and spiritually dead, God had to send Jesus to shed his blood, entering a blood covenant, so now that through faith, not behavior, man, anyone, could be made righteous, and now they could know God and walk with him. The whole Bible is about this story. So John chapter 3, go ahead and turn there. John chapter 3, verse 14, look at what it says. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Verse 15. That whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Whoever believes in him. Now this word believeth, Remember, in the King James Version, everybody gets all caught up on the ETH, believe it. Why don't you just say believe? Well, King Jimmy had it, had it translated yeah, in, in the Elizabethan English because of the verb tenses. Because the word believe literally means to believe and to commit to your whole life to continue to believe. Whenever you, say e, whenever you see ETH in the Bible, it, it literally means to believe and to continue to believe, to walk and to continue to walk, okay? 
Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Did you notice verse 16 sounds exactly like verse 15? So the Holy Spirit said the exact same thing in two verses. Verse 17, God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world. This word condemn is interesting. God didn't send Jesus to separate, to judge, and to condemn the world. But God sent his son, you could say it this way, that the world through him might be saved. Oh my goodness, he said the same thing again. Isn't that amazing? God goes up the same mountain different ways. Verse 18, he that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already. Isn't that amazing? Why? Why is he already condemned? This is why. Because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So condemned, you're condemned already. Well, what is the condemnation? Verse 19. And this is the condemnation that light is come into the world. That's talking about Jesus. And men love darkness rather than light. Why did they love darkness? Because their deeds were evil. Because this, is, this is what's keeping people from knowing God. I just want to live my own life. I just want to do my own thing. And, and that, that's just, it's just not set up that way. To be honest with you, if you're a child of God, if you've accepted Christ and you're born again, your spirit does not want to live your own life and do your own thing. Your spirit hungers and thirsts after the living God. Well, pastor, then why do I have all this trouble in my flesh? It's because it's in your flesh. It's not you. It's pulling you right? It's constantly pulling you. And if you, if you choose to not renovate your thinking with the word of God and put this word first, you have nothing to combat that. But oh, if you'll make a decision to live a Christ-centered life, if you'll make a decision to commit your life to knowing him intimately, everything changes. Because now you will love him more than you love these deeds of the flesh. And it'll, it'll literally walk you into life. I love that. So, again, the God's blood covenant with man was born out of his love for man. Everything about God, when you look at how he, what he thinks of you, what he's done for you, how that his eyes are always upon you, why? Because he loves you. Today, he loves you so much. His love never wavers. Whether you're obedient, whether you're disobedient, right? 
Have you ever willfully sinned and done something that God didn't want you to do? Absolutely. Do you have to? No. We don't fall into sin. We choose it. Right? Because the enemy's been defeated. So when we, when we choose sin, we choose it. But God's love never, never wavers. Now, that doesn't mean he's pleased with you, right? He's not pleased with many of his children because they don't believe him, right? I mean, my two children, I love them. I would die for them without even thinking about it. I love them so much. Now, I could live a life pleased with them or I could not be pleased with them, right? But it doesn't change the way I love them. And actually, I could tell you this, what greatly has ever displeased me as their dad is when I can't help them, when there's no open door to help them. And that's the way God is. Man, he wants to help you, but he, he won't change he won't be like, well, you know, I know Tony doesn't want to honor me in his finances, but you know what? I'm still just going to bless him anyway. He can't do that. He, he, he can't change. Does that make sense? I, I know, you know, man, I, I just, I know Tony is struggling in this area uh, and he just won't stop these things, but, you know, I'm just going to go ahead and heal him anyway. I'll just go ahead. I mean, he's already provided it, so I'll just kind of force it on him. No, I've got to lay hold of it through faith. God will never violate your will, even though he loves us so much. When people know of his love for them, they know him. To know God is to know of his great love for you. Faith comes from knowing him, right? And when you know him, you know he loves you. And when you mess up, you don't run from him, you run to him. And you know, whenever you need mercy, the fact that you need it, he, he always has more than enough for you, right? He's like, he's like that story of the prodigal son. The father was looking. The father was in faith. He goes, I know my son's returning. It's the way God is, right? So God's just saying, let me into your life. Don't try to overcome this addiction in yourself. Don't try to overcome this problem in yourself, right? Don't try to fix your relationship in yourself, whether it be a parent relationship, a marriage relationship, whatever it is, right? It's not about living for God. It's about letting him live through you. And that comes from knowing him. When you come to know that you are the object of his love and of his attention, that is what empowers you. Do you know God wants to empower you to prosper in every arena of your life? Prosperity is a lot, much, a lot more than money. Now, money's a big part of it because it's so important in this world system. But to be empowered to prosper, you have to have a revelation knowledge that you are the object of God's love and his attention. And the whole Bible is that story. So the blood covenant, we could say it this way, is the scarlet thread of redemption. And it's woven 
from Genesis 1-1 all the way to Revelation 22. It's woven through the whole Bible, okay? The Old Testament is a picture of, sal of the salvation message of Jesus. Let me say this again. When you read the Old Testament, you are reading the whole Old Testament is a picture of the salvation message of Jesus, the whole thing. So if you want to understand the Old Testament, you got to understand that. Otherwise, you'll miss it. All the endless rituals and events, have you ever read through the Bible? You're like, do I have to, I don't care how you cut the thing and do, right? All those endless rituals and events, they're all pieces that as you put them together, you put together the picture of God's blood covenant, his great love and attention for you. The Old Testament is God pointing to Jesus. Whenever you're reading the Old Testament, you need to ask the question, okay, God is pointing to his son. I got to see that here, right? Jesus is God in the flesh. He came to reconcile, to restore to himself his creation. That's what Jesus did, right? He, he came to restore everything to himself. The Bible is actually a love story. See, God knew there was only one way to reach us. And he was willing to go all the way with this. Okay? So Matthew chapter 1, verse 23. So it says here in Matthew 1, verse 23, it says, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son. They shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted means God with us. Actually, you got to go all the way with that definition. The word Emmanuel means God with us in a new way. What do you mean a new way? Jesus stepped out of heaven as the literally the God of the universe, the creator of all things. He unclothed himself with all of his godly glory, and then he clothed himself. It says he took upon himself flesh so that he could be born into the earth as a man because it's all legal. In order to redeem man, he had to come into this earth realm as a man. So that's why he did that. He stepped into our, our realm to redeem us. And it's all about a blood covenant. In John chapter 5, John chapter 5, verse 39. We're going to read verse 39 and 40. Jesus said this. He said, search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. Now, Jesus is talking about the whole Old Testament. He's saying, you, you guys, you religious leaders, you Pharisees, you Sadducees, right? You doctors of the law, all this stuff, you search the scriptures, and you think you have eternal life in them. But they are actually, guys, they are testifying of me. They, Jesus is saying, all of that old, those Old Testament scriptures are testifying of me. It was God saying, listen, everything is so that you will recognize my son when he shows up. 
right? And it says, and you will not come to me that you might have life. Jesus is like, man, you give your life for the word and you think because you know the word, know the word, you have eternal life, but you don't understand all of these scriptures are testifying of me and you won't come to me so you could have eternal life. Isn't that interesting? God, you need to realize this, God has been to the future and back for us. God had a plan the moment man sinned, way before that, because he's all-knowing, he had a plan to redeem man. I mean, he had a plan the whole time. God already knew he would come to earth. God already knew he would have to clothe himself in flesh. God knew about the manger, right? God knew about the wedding in Cana of Galilee, way before he came to this earth. God knew about the man that would be let down through the roof by his friends, right? The man born by four that was healed. He knew about that. He knew about the woman that was healed with the issue of blood. He already knew. What else did he know about? He knew that he was gonna walk on the water with Peter. He knew that he was going to come and have a triumphant entry into Jerusalem. He knew the moment that was going to happen. He also knew about Judas. He knew about Judas, that he was going to be betrayed by him. He also, before he ever stepped into this realm, knew all about the scourging, the beating he was going to take. He knew all about the cross. Do you imagine Jesus growing up, walking by a cross, seeing men crucified, knowing that was his future, but way beyond that? Because it wasn't just the physical thing. That was nothing compared to having all the weight and judgment of the sin of the whole world. God knew all of that before he ever came into this earth realm. He also knew about the resurrection. He knew that when he was raised to life, he knew you would be raised to life someday. He knew all about his ascension. He knew that after he was raised, he was going to go back into heaven. And he was going to sit down at his father's right hand. And he was going to be given a name above every name. And he knew he was going to give that authority to the church so that they can walk on this earth like him. He knew that the mighty Holy Spirit would be poured out 40 days later and would empower the church to be Jesus in this earth. He knew all about that. Isn't that amazing? He knew how he would come into your life. All through the Old Testament, he painted a picture of himself in types and shadows this is, like a, this is like a masterpiece. All of it, types and shadows. God was painting a picture of himself all through the Old Testament so that his people would recognize when he came. Do you realize those religious leaders? They knew who he was. And they killed him because they didn't want to share that glory with him. Isn't that crazy? 
the high priest Caiaphas, those chanting crucify him, knew who he was. Think about that. Right now, Caiaphas is in hell today. He's been there almost 2,000 years. Thinking to himself, I gave my life to know God and my pride kept me out. Wow. God wanted everyone to know him when he showed up. All right? So John chapter 14, verse 6. Is this good? Man, there's an anointing to talk about this today. John chapter 14, verse 6. Jesus said unto him, what? I'm not a way. I am the way. I'm not a truth. I am the truth. I'm just not one form of life. No, I am the life. And then he says this, no man can come to the Father but through me or by me. You could say by or through, both work in the Greek. See, this verse tells us why the Bible makes no sense to people who haven't surrendered completely to Jesus Christ. Right? Do you know we have a lot of people that have prayed a prayer but they really didn't mean it from their heart and they might think they're saved, but they're not. And, and this will make no sense to people. But I'm telling you, those of you who have committed your life to Christ and really are born again, you will understand, wait a minute, he is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. You can tell when a person's just carnal, but they're born again. You know why? Because they keep running back to Jesus. Oh, they might, they might feel bad and run over to, you know, and kind of live in this for a little while, but man, down on the inside of them, they feel this wooing, go back to him. He's your answer, he's your answer, he's your answer, right? But this is why the Bible makes no sense. The Bible makes no sense to someone who's never committed their life to Christ. It's interesting. When you yield your life to him, when you surrender your life to his lordship, what happens, the picture becomes clear. It's like you walk out of the fog and everything becomes clear. But it all takes, you have to make that decision. Why is that? Because the word of God is alive. This is not ink on a page. The word of God is alive. It's living. It's full of his life. It's full of power. It's medicine to all your flesh. It will restore your life. I mean, everything about God and about his word brings you to life. That's why we just, we literally obey him. We follow him. He can't hurt you, right? People struggle with honoring God in their finances. Because if you'll notice, you don't get past due invoices from him. Right? If you don't honor God in your finances, you know, you could go your whole life. But the problem is, the Bible even says in this area, it darkens your whole life. So you're just living in a cloud. But oh, when you commit to him, and man, I'll tell you, 
when you first make a decision to honor God in your finances, most people, you know, unless you're really wealthy, most people are like, man, how am I going to get by if I give him the first dime out of every dollar? And it's like, oh, wait a minute, I can't give that to him. Really, the whole dollar's his. You're going to see that because he's in covenant with me. But he just is asking me for the first dime. I can't give it. I got to bring it. And that could be real scary. And then if you're over here and you just make a ton of money and you're wealthy, you are over here going, what? You, you want me to give 10%? No, you can't give that. You who are making millions every year, right? That's right. But see, this is the thing. When you surrender to his lordship, the picture becomes crystal clear. And you realize, whoa, wait a minute. God's not trying to get anything from me. He is trying, he's, he's wooing me to give him my first and my best only because he wants to give me his first and his best. And guess what? His first and his best is a lot better than your first and your best. Okay? The word of God is alive. Look at this, Luke 24, verse 44. And he said unto them, these are the words which I spoke unto you while I was yet with you, that all things, look at this, must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. The whole Old Testament is about Jesus. It's one story. Jesus was reminding them that the writers of the Old Testament, they were writing about him. Wow. Verse 45, you ready? Then opened he their, opened he their understanding that they might understand the scriptures and said unto them, thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. So the key to understanding scripture, if I was to teach a Bible study on how to study the word of God, which I really need to do that, you know, I, I, I probably would not do a series in church, but at least get it on our website. It all starts right here. The way the Old and New Testament, you have to understand that they are linked together, that it is the same story. How many times am I going to say that today? Wow, are you getting that? The Old Testament tells us that it is going to happen. That's what the whole Old Testament tells us. It's going to happen. Jesus is going to come. The New Testament tells us how it did happen. Okay? The Gospels are like a photograph. You see Christ. The epistles are like an x-ray or an MRI. You now see into Christ. Okay? The primary thrust of the Gospel is not that we are to be committed to God, but that God is committed to us. 
See, we miss this because pastors get up and they're frustrated and they start beating their sheep. They think of their, their sheep, but they're really not theirs. They're, they're God's sheep. And they start, you got to do this and you got to do... No, 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 no. The primary message of the Bible, the thrust of the gospel message is not that you must commit your life to him. No, the, the thrust is that God committed his life to you. And that's what causes you to run to him. It's not that we are to be dedicated to God, but that God is completely dedicated to you. Do you realize that today? God is committed to you. He's dedicated 100%. Everything that he has, he's given you. You're gonna see that in the blood covenant. Everything, when two people enter blood covenant, literally everything they have belongs to the other person. Everything. Do you know in the Old Testament, if, if let's say, let's just say Pastor Dave and I, we entered a blood covenant together, and I got in financial trouble, right? I wouldn't come over and say, hey, can you help me and give me some money? I would come to him and say, I, I need my checkbook. And I would just take a check and write it out, whatever I needed, because his money's mine. Do you realize that if you don't understand blood covenant, you won't understand faith. Everything God has is yours. All the healing anointing and healing power that he has is yours. All the finances, you know he owns the planet. Everything is his and guess what that means? Everything is yours. Wow. See, the thrust of the gospel is not what you and I are to do for God. The thrust of the gospel is what God has done for us. You got to get these things, otherwise you'll get into a works mentality. Because when you understand that God, the thrust of the gospel is that he's dedicated, committed, and he's done things for you. He's all in. Now that brings you to a place of rest, which is faith. If you don't understand that, you're going to be all frustrated and you're going to be trying to commit your life and dedicate your life. You're going to beat yourself up when you mess up, right? And Because you're just trying to do it all. And there's no life in that. See, we do believe in being committed to God. We do believe in being dedicated to God. We do believe in doing what he wants us to do, right? In serving him. But these things are a response to the gospel that God has committed to us, that he literally, his whole focus is what he can do for us. It's... Our, our behavior flows out of that as a response. It's kind of like in a marriage, right? If you look at marriage, it's a, lot, it's a lot harder to have a bad marriage than a good marriage. To have a good marriage, it's a lot easier, right? You just, you realize, wait a minute, I entered covenant with this lady, which meant I didn't enter the covenant for me. I entered the covenant for what I can do for her. So now, my whole life as a husband, I will honor her, 
and I will give myself for her. That's what I do, whether I want to, whether I don't, right? So I walk out of my office, and there's dishes all over the place. Like, it's amazing what two toddlers can do to a house, right? You guys know that stuff, right? So I was tired, but all that kept coming up in me is, I love this lady. I gave myself to this lady. She's going to come home after she puts those guys to bed because Jeanette, responsibility is number one with her. She has, she'll do everything, right? She won't even come in and get mad. She'll just do it. It's tired, right? But when she came home, guess what? It was all cleaned up because I wanted her to have it cleaned up. Oh, yeah. Trust me, that, that was a win, okay? That was a win. But there's been other times. We miss it as guys, right? But so guess what? Her response to me honoring, loving, and giving myself to her, guess what her response is to that? She's now able to honor me, right? When I deserve it, when I don't deserve it. So I give myself to her, her response is to honor me. Do you realize it's an upward spiral? But it's a covenant, It's a covenant. This is the way God is. The gospel itself is what God has done for us through Jesus Christ. See, we've told people to love God, to serve God, to be committed to him without really teaching and conveying to them who it is they are to serve and what he's done for them. We get up in a pulpit and we bash people for what they need to be doing instead of teaching them what God has done for them so that they can respond to that and that helps them. It empowers them because they get to know, remember earlier in this sermon, they get to know his great love for them and it empowers them. When a person sees what God has done for them, just how dedicated and how committed he is to them, it causes a person to reciprocate that. So every, every Christian who's out there just living their own life, why? Because they really don't know that God really loves them. And if you want to change your behavior, get your eyes off your behavior and get your eyes on what the one who loved you and gave himself for you has done for you, and it will change your behavior. 1 John chapter 4, run over there real quick. What are we talking about? We're talking about the scarlet thread of redemption. I'm telling you this, if you'll take notes on this, if you'll get revelation knowledge of what we're teaching on, it will so change every arena of your life. It will cause you to walk free from any blind spots that are in your life. It'll help you lay hold of all that God's given you through faith, right? All that he's given you by his grace, you'll be able to lay hold of it because you'll understand and be empowered. It changes everything. 1 John chapter 4, verse 16, look at this. It says, and we have known and believed the love that God hath to us. You could translate it that that God has in us. God is love, and he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God, 
and God in him. Okay? Keep the thought going. Verse 17. Herein is our love made perfect. Herein what? Verse 16. Right? God is love. He that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God and God in him. And in that, the fact that I'm dwelling in love and his love is dwelling in me, our love is made perfect. That means it's brought, it's brought to completeness. It's finished. It's accomplished. It reaches its intended goal. You want the love of God that has been shed abroad in your heart to reach its intended goal. Its intended goal is so that you look at it and you have revelation knowledge that there is nothing that I could ever do to make God love me less. That will change every arena of your life. Wow. It says this, herein is our love made perfect. What is the result of that? That we may have boldness. Do you know this word boldness in the Greek means freedom of speaking? It means confidence in speaking. Why? Because faith believes in your heart and speaks out of your mouth. Why are Christians not speaking the word? Because they don't know God loves him. They don't know God loves them. That we may have confidence in the day of judgment. This word judgment is in the day of accusation. It's in the day of a crisis. Here's the other part of this Greek word. It's in the day where something is trying to separate you. Separate you from what? The love of God. That day of judgment, guess what day it is? It's today. When you wake up tomorrow, it will be today, and that will be your other day of judgment. In other words, the enemy is going to try to come to you. He's going to try to accuse you. He's going to try to separate you. He'll create crises, all for the purpose of you taking your eyes off knowing that God loves you and that his whole attention, he's committed. He, he's completely committed to you. That's the whole game. It says here, because as he is, who is he? As he is, as Jesus is, the one who is righteous, the one who has all authority, so are we in this world. Why does Satan want to mess with you? Because he does not want you to go into your world and show the world Jesus. He hates that. So in other words, you want to be a great witness? Gain revelation knowledge of how much God is, he is in love with you. You are the focus of his attention. He's dedicated and committed to you. Look at this. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts or throws out fear because fear has torment. He that fears is not made perfect in love. We love him. Here it is. We love him. Why? Why do I have the ability to love God? Because I know that he first loved me. See, in the, in the Song of Solomon, it's, it doesn't say, I am my beloved and he is mine. No, it says, 
He is mine and I am his. It's always, how can I give myself to God because I know he completely gave himself to me. That's how I will be empowered. This, guys, you have to get this to understand the blood covenant. And you have to understand the blood covenant. Do you realize there's churches that don't like to say the word blood? Have you noticed nobody died today? As I'm looking at some of these faces, I think you guys are pretty excited about talking about the blood. Because you were redeemed by the blood. Right? We can only really love him when we see how much he loves us. So here's the problem. Many have been hurt in certain relationships. They've been betrayed, and it's caused disillusionment. Right? Some by parents, some by spouses, some by friends, some by your church family, some by pastors, some by all of the above. Right? As a result, what do we do? We build walls to protect ourselves. You can tell when somebody has built walls to protect themselves because then they withdraw from commitment. Some, some can't. They can't see how they could ever commit their life to another person because this person hurt them so much. Right? Some people who come to church, I've had, I've had people come to this church that have told me, when I came here, I didn't trust you at all because I was hurt by a pastor, right? And now you're the, or, or you're the first pastor I've ever been able to trust. See, we build walls. It keeps us from commitment. Why do people many times not do things in church? Why do they not commit their life to God in their life? Because they've been hurt by people. And you think, well, what does that have to do with anything? Because they've built walls. Do you know those walls are prisons? Right? They won't trust themselves to anyone. And God wants to break all those walls down in your mind. And the anointing will crush them all and destroy them all to where it's, you know, it's me and I'm in God and he loves me and he's for me. And, it, you know, it doesn't matter what I do. He just still loves me and he's for me. Every time I turn to him, every time I move towards him, he's moving towards me. He's sitting there waiting to move towards me because he loves me so much. How do we know that we can trust God? What is the basis of our relationship with him? The answer to those two questions is the blood covenant. It's amazing to me how little teaching on the blood covenant there is because this is, this, this is how you answer the question. How can I really trust God? What is the basis of my relationship? Is it just religion? I go to church to feel better. I light a candle. I say some Hail Marys. I do this. I do that. Right, or if you're a charismatic Christian, I come, you know, just because I, I got to be in church because, you know, it just makes me feel better. What is the basis? Let's go deeper. The blood covenant will show you that God went all the way with you. All the way. He gave all of himself to you. 
It's really interesting. The word covenant in the Hebrew is the word berith. It's spelled B-A-R-I-Y-T-H. Berith is how you pronounce it. It means to cut until the blood flows. Okay? So keep that in mind. I feel people going, can you say that again? <coughs> Berith. Okay, you pronounce it B-E-R-E-E-T-H. Berith. It's spelled B-A-R-I-Y-T-H. Okay? It means to cut until the blood flows. Okay? So Leviticus, what is so important about the blood? In Leviticus, you should all know this scripture, Leviticus 17, verse 11, it says this, for the life of the flesh is in the blood. That's what I want you to see. The life of the flesh is in the blood. That's why when Jesus shed all his blood for you and I, he shed all his life for you and I. Right now, in heaven, on the mercy seat, in that tabernacle that Jesus made, he didn't make it with his hands, he made it with his mouth. There is, there is an Ark of the Covenant, there's a mercy seat on there, and his blood is on that mercy seat. We're going to see it someday. And that blood speaks that you and I are forever connected with God. It can't be broken. So let's look at the natural, I gotta, I'm just going to take some time, let's look at the natural historical background of blood covenants, right? Blood covenants are known to every civilization that has ever existed, right? Why? Because it all started in the garden, right? The Vikings of Northern Europe, study them, American Indians, the tribes of Africa, the Arab nations, the tribes of South America, you can go on and on and on. No matter where you go, you will find evidence of blood covenants. See, you can start to wonder how all these different people knew of this ancient rite. You start to ask yourself the question, how could everybody, there's all these different forms of them. Right, Even though many of these people practiced a degenerated form of a blood covenant, it was degenerated. It wasn't like the Hebrew blood covenant. It was different variations, but it was still a blood covenant. But it all started from a source. They all learned it from a common source. The sacredness of blood in relationship is strong, or to, I'm sorry, the sacredness of blood in relationships to strong commitments has been practiced ever since the time of Adam. Blood in relationships, the correlation to a strong relationship. It's always been here since the Garden of Eden. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 21 says this Unto Adam also and to his wife, did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothe them? When Adam and Eve fell, look at what had to happen. Blood was shed in the making of those coats of skin after the fall. 
It's the first time we see that blood being shed. Genesis chapter 4, verses 2 through 7. I'm just going to read this to you. And she again bare his brother Abel, and Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in process of time it came to pass that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering to the Lord. Notice, Cain brought an offering to the Lord. And Abel, he also bought, brought the firstlings of his flock. So Abel just grabbed some of the stuff, not the first. See, what the tithe started in the garden. What was the first tithe? Don't eat of that tree. That's, everything else is yours, but that's mine. Don't touch it don't, or don't eat of it, right? So we have Abel brings his first and his best. Cain just brought an offering, okay? But unto Cain, but unto Cain and unto, or, but unto Cain and to his offering, he had not respect. Wow. Let me back up. Verse four. Abel brought the firstlings of his flock and of the fat thereof, and the Lord had respect unto Abel and, his offer, and to his offering. But unto Cain and to his offering, he had not respect, and Cain was very wroth, or he was very angry. And his countenance fell. And the Lord said unto Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well... Shalt, not, shalt thou not be accepted? In other words, listen, Cain, if you just do it right, it'll be accepted. Don't be mad at me. Just do it right. Right? And if, if you do it not well, this is what happens. Sin lies at the door, and unto thee shall be his desire, and you shall rule over him or have dominion over him. See, sin will come in and have dominion over you, Cain. So just do it right. Abel offered blood when the lambs were sacrificed. Genesis chapter 9, verses 1 through 4. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said unto them, now this is after the flood, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. And the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth. Hopefully that was after they went off the ark. Think about that. All these animals, they just came. All right? I mean, could you imagine Bengal tiger, two of them, just come walking by, right? And they, they didn't have that thought, I want to eat Noah. But, right, but after they got off, right, here we go, right? Look at this. Shall be upon every beast of the earth, upon every fowl of the air, upon all that moves upon the earth, and upon all the fishes of the sea. Into your hand they are, are they delivered. Every moving thing that liveth shall be meat for you, even as the green herb have I given you all things. But flesh with the life thereof, which is the blood thereof, shall you not eat. That's how come God says, listen, the life of the flesh is in the blood. You don't eat the blood. Okay? God told Noah that the life of the flesh was in the blood. Now jump down to verse 18. 
And the sons of Noah that went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And Ham is the father of Canaan. These are the three sons of Noah, and of them was the whole earth overspread. So if you think about it, after the flood, the whole earth was populated by those three. Okay? The New American Standard Bible says this, these three were the sons of Noah, and from these the whole earth was populated. As different tribes, as different civilizations developed, there were slight deviations in this blood covenant, but it started out pure. Okay? However, the essential principles of the blood covenant were intact. In many societies, the blood covenant is still in place. So, I want to read to you. We have a few minutes. I know I'm, I'm going a little bit here. But I want to read to you. This is a great book on the blood covenant. The, the Miracle of the Scarlet Thread. Notice it's smaller. That's always a good sign. Because sometimes when they're too big, the author is just wanting to sound really smart and academic. And it, you fall asleep and you don't get anything. But now let's look at the, I want, this gives a real good outline of the Hebrew blood covenant. There's nine steps to it. And in these nine steps, you are going to see why God says in the word so many things. Step number one, if you were going to cut covenant with somebody according to the pure Hebrew covenant, this is the first thing you would do. You would take off your coat or your robe and give it to the other person. Now to the Hebrew, a person's robe represents the person. By taking off my robe and giving it to you, I'm, I'm symbolically saying I'm giving you all of myself. My total being and my life, I am pledging to you, and then you would do the same to the other person. Does that make sense? That's the first step. So this whole thing started out with, I am giving you everything that I am. Then you would take off your belt after you took off your coat. The next thing I do is take off my belt and give it to you. Now, we use belts to hold up our pants, right? But back then, they used a belt to hold all of their weapons, okay? Ephesians chapter 6, the armor of God, the belt of truth. It would hold the weapon, right? My belt holds my armor together, my dagger, my bow, my arrow, my sword. So symbolically, I'm giving you all my strength and I'm pledging you all my support and protection. And as I give you my belt, I'm saying, here is my strength and all my ability to fight if anyone attacks you, they are attacking me. Now think about this with you and God. When Satan attacks your body, guess who he's attacking? Right? Your battles are my battles and mine are yours. I will fight with you. I will help defend you and protect you and you will do the same for me. This is similar to a compact nation's might, the way they, they make compacts today with nations. But this one, it's a covenant. It cannot be broken. The Hebrew covenant cannot be broken once it's in place. 
The next thing you would do, step number three, is you would cut the covenant. Right? You would take an animal and you would split it right down the middle. In the Bible, an animal is only cut down the middle and split in two in a covenant ceremony. After we split the animal, we lay each half to the side of us and stand in between the two bloody halves of the flesh with our backs to each other. So the other person. And then they would both start walking. One would walk this way and one would walk this way in a figure eight until they came back around and they were facing each other. Okay? So now at the end, they would do a figure eight around this animal. And when they came back around, they were no longer back to back. They were front to front. In doing this, they were saying two things. First, we're saying that we are dying to ourselves, giving up the rights to our own life and beginning a new walk with our covenant partner unto death. You're not back to back. God's God doesn't turn his back from you. You're in covenant with him. You are face to face. You have given him. See, this is why a lot of people, they think, well, I'm just gonna, I wanna live my own life, but I'll, I'll pray a little prayer because I don't wanna go to hell. That doesn't, that, that's not what we're talking about. God's giving everything to you, which inspires you to give everything to him. You see, in this covenant, each half of the dead animal represents us. And, the, and second, since the blood covenant is a solemn pact, we each point down to the bloody animal split in two and say, God do so to me and more if I ever try to break this covenant. Just split me right down the middle and feed me to the vultures because I tried to break the most sacred of all compacts. Number four, then they would raise their right arm and mix blood. They would raise their right arms, they would cut their palms and bring them together. They both raise their right arms, they would cut their palms, right? To cut until the blood flows, and then they would put their hands together, signifying the mixing of the blood, right? As we do our blood intermingles, then we swear allegiance to each other. As our blood intermingles, we believe our life our, inter, our lives are intermingled because of the blood and we become one life. Do you realize you're one with God? You're one with him. Why would God ever hate himself? This is because our blood is our life and to intermingle blood is to intermingle life. So we are putting off our old nature and putting on the nature of our blood covenant partner. I'm putting away my old life and I'm embracing his life. We too are becoming one. Sounds a little bit like a marriage, doesn't it? Man has always believed that intermingling blood is intermingling life. This symbolically shows the two of us becoming one. Step number five. Then we exchange names. This is amazing. Then as we stand there with our blood intermingling, hand to hand, we exchange names. I take your last name as part of my name and you take my last name as part of your name. 
then the next step is we make a scar. We want that cut to be there for our whole life. So we make a scar on purpose. The next step is to rub our blood together and make a scar as a permanent testimony to the covenant. The scar will bear witness to the covenant we have made. It will always be there to remind us of our covenant responsibilities to each other. It is the guarantee of our covenant. Listen, when you see Jesus, you're going to see the holes. He still has the scars to forever tell you that he is forever yours and you are forever his. Wow. If anyone tries to harm us, all we have to do is raise up that right arm and show our scar. By that we're saying there's more to me than meets the eye. If you're coming after me, you're also going to have to fight my blood covenant partner and you don't know how big he is. So what are you going to do? Are you going to take your chances or back off? Satan will back off. That's how come it says, if you will submit your life to God and resist the devil, he will flee. He's, not fle he's fleeing from you, but he's fleeing from God. Right? Henry Stanley, on his explorations through Africa, cut covenant 50 times with different chiefs in Africa. And we can certainly understand why. Anytime he would come across an unfriendly tribe, he would just uphold up his right hand. Right? And they would take off running in the other direction. Why? Could you imagine? He would hold up his, he just, they'd come after him to kill him and he'd hold up his hand. And you would see 50 scars and it would freak them out because they're like, oh my gosh, this guy, it's more than just him. It's 50 tribes. Some of these could be the worst tribe, the most fierce tribes. We're out of here, right? It's kind of like you mess with me, you got to mess with God. I love this, right? Today, when we meet friends, we don't show scars, we shake hands. There are many trappings of blood covenant in our modern society. We've just eliminated the blood from it. Number seven, we're almost done, hang in there. We give covenant terms. Then we stand before witnesses and give the terms of the covenant. I say things like, all my assets are yours, all my money, all my property, all my possessions are yours. If you need any of them, you don't even have to ask me. Just come and get it. What's mine is yours. What's yours is mine. And if I die, all my children are yours by adoption, and you are responsible for my family. But at the same time, you also get all my liabilities. If I ever get in financial trouble, I don't have to come ask you for money. I come and say, where's your checkbook? Or where's our checkbook? We are in covenant. Everything I have is yours and everything you have is mine, both assets and liabilities. Here's the good news, guys. God has no liabilities. But he took all your liabilities. So we stand there and read off before witnesses our list of assets and liabilities. After that, what do we do? 
Number eight, we eat a memorial meal. Then we have a memorial meal to complete the covenant union. In place of the animal and blood, we have bread and wine. Sounds a lot like communion. In the Bible, wine is called the blood of the grapes. That's in Genesis 49, 11. And it represents our own life blood. The bread represents our flesh. We take a loaf of bread and break it in two and feed it to each other saying, this is symbolic of my body and I'm now putting it in you. Then we serve each other wine and say, this is symbolic of my life blood, which is now your blood. And now symbolically, I'm in you and you're in me. We are now one together with a new nature. Are you beginning to see why we're teaching on the blood covenant? Then after that, the last step is we plant a memorial. We now leave a memorial to the covenant. We want to always remember it. We do this by planting a tree that we have sprinkled with the blood of the animal. The blood-sprinkled tree, along with our scar, will always be a testimony to our covenant. Wow. From this time on now, we're known as friends. After covenant was cut, then they were known as a friend. Boy, have we watered down the definition of friends. Right? If you mess up and you come to me and you tell me, man, pastor, I really messed up and I've lost a lot of friends over that deal. I would look at you and smile and go, no, you haven't lost any friends. You just found out who your friends are because a friend won't ever leave. You were not called a friend until you cut covenant with somebody. In Bible times, one didn't use the word friend loosely as we do today. You become friends only after you had cut covenant. And all our children are included in this covenant, even the unborn ones. They are in covenant because they are in us. Later, when they are born and come to an age of understanding about our covenant, they can choose to stay in it or reject it. Isn't that interesting? Blood covenant. Guys, you are his because he has given you all of him. This is the basis of our relationship. When we say born again, it will mean a lot more to you now. This is, isn't this amazing? Wow, Father, I just thank you. I thank you so much.